0: Good evening. Good to see everyone for the Truth Seekers, our third Tuesday of the month. And uh, so it's good to see everyone. We meet first and third Tuesday. And then on the second Tuesday, we have a a prayer time uh, as well. Um, Obviously, we talk about a a lot of different things. And um, I'll I'll be honest, I was last week uh, or two weeks ago, we looked at, you know, kind of some darker stuff, which is kind of everything. Right. Like if you're talking about cultural issues, it feels like all of it is, is a little frustrating right now. And um, and so I was planning on, I'm reading a couple of things. Um, there's lots of information coming out about um, our medical kind of uh, <laughs> community and especially with vaccines. And, and there's a lot of questions about what they knew early on. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with that. I guess part of it is because <laughs> Um, being lied to really irritates me. And so if, if I took a vaccine based on data that they knew wasn't accurate, I think we all should be a little frustrated. Like that's not something you say, well, it's in the past. Let's just move on. Um, but anyway, so there's, there are uh, some different books. And one that, is, that you can get on Amazon actually takes and looks at uh, the documents from Pfizer from their studies And uh, they they actually wanted to have them sealed for 75 years, which that's like a red flag. If you you say, yeah, you know, I think, well, that was overturned. They've been releasing the Pfizer documents, 55,000 pages a month over multiple months. All right. So that tells you they're basically just bogging the system down with, I mean, it's just who can look at that. Well, there are some people, thankfully, that are. Um, And so they've made some claims that are, that are shocking, and and then they link to where it shows in these Pfizer documents. Well, I started the process because I want to kind of seed the data that they say, and I, and see if I can see the same result, right? Um, I, and I can't do that, you know, real well. But at least you know I can <laughs> say, oh no, wait, you're misrepresenting that completely. So I started that process, and uh, I'm gonna I'm still going to talk about that. But as I was doing it, I was like, no, I I can't do that this week. Need to kind of refocus and remember that we also have to have some hope in all of this. And so I'm I'm reading a book uh, called uh, White Pill. It's actually by an interesting guy um, who we would probably disagree with on a lot of things. He grew up in the Soviet Union or was born in the Soviet Union. Um, he's he's basically, he considers himself an anarchist, but not a violent anarchist. Um, but as you talk to him, you can kind of understand that. He he doesn't like government because he kind of grew up in the Soviet Union. And, and he also is very uh, aware of what's happening in some of the areas of our government too. Um, But what's interesting, he calls it white pill. And the reason he calls it that is if, if you're familiar with the matrix, and this has kind of become a, um, a cultural thing, there's the blue pill and there's the red pill in the, in the movie, the matrix, basically the premise is that uh, there's uh, a group of machines that are running the world and people are actually just in these little pods providing the energy for the machines and, and, but the machines are nice so that they've created where the, the people think they're alive. So they, they're living life like we are and they think that's the, the reality, but it's really not. Right. And so if there's certain people that are starting to find out and they're trying to wake people up to say, Hey, you're, you're not living in reality. And in order to do that, you have to take the red pill. Or if you just want to be comfortable and just live in a pod and but not realize you're living in a pod, you take the blue pill. Okay, so so it's actually I mean, depending on what side of the political aisle you're on, you know, the red pill now has become that you're waking up to some of the stuff that's going on that, wait, maybe our government isn't doesn't. Care about us as much as we hope that it was, you know. Right? Maybe we are moving a little bit too too fascist and communist and Marxist, all mixed up in one. You know. So taking the red pill is when people wake up to that, right? And uh, so that's been there a while. Then they're starting to be. Once you take the red pill, you realize, oh, this <laughs> this is <laughs> this is tough, right? This is this is not a great situation. And so then you have two options from there. And this is kind of the premise of the book. You can take the black pill, which means now you're aware of everything, and not, but you have no hope. And you're basically kind of nihilistic. Like this, there's too much. We can't ever do anything. And you basically give up, right? You, you recognize the reality, but just kind of it's it's over. It's done with. We're too far gone. That's the black pill. Obviously, you don't want to take the black pill. The, the author, who, again, considers himself an anarchist, he, he says we need to be taking the white pill after that, which means that we still have hope. And one of the things that, that he says is, yeah, and he, get, he gets critical of some conservative media that is is too doom and gloom, um, you know, because he's like, listen, this is not anywhere near what was going on in the Soviet Union. As bad as things are now, it's, it's nowhere even close. And and i started thinking about that, and he's exactly right. Now, the problem is, is we're starting to take some steps towards that, right? With censorship, just uh, the government becoming all powerful, starting to control all different levels, all of that stuff, not being able to trust your government, not being able to trust your name. That was one of the horrible things in COVID um, that happened. And by the way, COVID is a catalyst of a lot of this stuff, right, um, that that we saw the way the government started acting in COVID, it actually started encouraging citizens to inform on other citizens, right? That's a dangerous place to be. because. And he has some stories, I haven't finished the book, but he has some stories of what it was like to truly live uh, in a, tot- a true totalitarian state uh, like the Soviet Union. And he, he said, you literally didn't trust anyone, not not even your spouse, not even your children. Like the the state encouraged the children to turn in their parents if their parents were having conversations at home that went against the government. And the children would be lauded as heroes, right? I mean, and, and he said, I've read a, a few other uh, people that say, for those of us who have had freedom, we really just can't comprehend what it is like to be in a true totalitarian government, which is why we need to take the white pill and fight against moving in that direction, right? But we can't, we can't get so frustrated because we actually still, like, like people are gonna be able to listen to what I say today, right? And, now, and no one, I don't think anyone's gonna walk through those doors and tell me to quit talking. Now, have there been people that have been censored and has the government kind of started to get involved with that? Yes, but people are still overall able to get their voice out, even if it's contrary to what the government says. Now it's getting harder and harder to know what is true, right? And so so we need to, to be pushing back against it, but we, we've we also got to step back and say, wait, we, we can still defeat this. And so I, with that, on my my thought process, I, there was a there's a book called The Five Thousand Year Leap. It's definitely worth reading. It talks about the founding principles, the main principles that our founding fathers believed in that led to the founding of this country. That basically caused a five thousand year advancement in society. That things had been basically the same, governments very similar. But then you had something new that happened and it's been it's changed the world. right? And um, as you, you read some of that and you read some of the, these principles, even back in the 1700s, the late 1700s, when they you know, came together, did the Declaration in 1776 and then the Constitution in 1787, um, they were still battling some of the basic ideas that we battle today the ideas of collectivism you know we would consider that leftist thought they were battling that they were battling the idea of a big government of a government that takes care of you um and and so i started in that book there's a, a couple of things and then there's some different quotes and i just want to kind of throw that out just a little bit now this is some basic uh history and understanding this is uh this is used as an example, this wasn't used by the founding fathers, but to kind of try to explain how they viewed government is with this three-headed eagle, all right, and and the first thing you have to know is the way that they viewed government by looking at just governments throughout history is they, they move from the, the left, which was tyranny, right, to the far right, which is anarchy, so those are your, those are the two extremes, which we can see some of that in, in both, both extremes today, right? Um, and so what they were shooting for is something in the middle, right? They did recognize that there had to be a government, but that was, that was what all the argument or most of the arguments was about was how much does the government do, right? And, and of course, you had some that, that wanted it to do basically nothing, and others that wanted to do do a little bit more, right? They had major. In fact, Benjamin Franklin in 1787, he was he was old by this time, um, and so he was already kind of past his prime. But he was there, and they were arguing so much about trying to get the Constitution uh, going uh, that he stood up and and he was many consider him one of the least um, least uh, people of faith. Um, at least faithful of the founding fathers but he actually got up and said, hey we we' we have got to step back here and he recommended uh, that they started every morning with prayer and that they they actually broke and went to a worship service together um, and then from that time on they had an official chaplain that that they voted on to be there to start every every meeting. It was just just neat but recognizing, how important this process was. So that's that, that's that's important to kind of understand where they they knew that governments can be tyrannical. They knew that they could be anarchy, and neither of those are good for the people because they want to do what's best for the people. So you have the the three headed eagle, and uh, and so the the first one is representative of the the legislature, which is the House and the Senate, uh, right? With both both eyes focused on. Uh, the people and doing what the the um, um, doing what's best for the people. Then, of course, you have the executive branch and the, the ju- judicial branch. Um, we have, I think, the founders would be appalled at how we treat the president of the United States today. Um, they they would just roll over in their graves because we treat the president more like a monarch than actually not the most powerful branch the legislature was supposed to be the most powerful branch um, and uh, now i mean they're 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 equal in many ways but it, the legislature was supposed to be doing a lot more than it is now um but you you see and they all have the same neck right so they're all uh, do, uh rooted in the same thing um but there's those different branches and uh and then you also have the two different wings And again, these are just summarizing kind of the thoughts of the the founding fathers. I thought this was really interesting is the the first wing um, and both wings need to be equal and the same and and the same uh, putting the same force. That way you're flying straight rather than flying (laughs) in circles. Right. So wing one uh, of the eagle might be referred to as the problem solving wing or the wing of compassion. Those who function through the d- dimension of the system are sensitive to the unfulfilled needs of the people. They dream of elaborate plans to solve these problems. And, 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 uh, and you see, Thomas Jefferson would have been part of this wing of coming up with different ideas of how we can help the people, right? Because uh, the government should be about helping the people. But there has to be limits on that. And that's why you need the second wing and the second wing has the responsibility of conserving the nation's resources and the people's freedom it function its function is to analyze the programs of wing number one with two questions first can we afford it secondly what will it do to the rights and individual freedom of the people and I just, I, I loved how they put that, and that's kind of a summary, and then they go into in-depth how they, they get, get there. But uh, I thought that's such an important foundational understanding that we have. There's nothing wrong with trying to come up with new ideas and good ideas of how to help people. And, and there's nothing wrong with floating ideas that say, well, maybe we should just give everybody a house. Wouldn't that be great? And, but then you have to balance that with, well, can we afford it? Will it bankrupt us? And what does that do to individual freedom? Right. And, and I I think you can, again, COVID is a great example where we had lots of wonderful ideas of how to help people and started just implementing many of those. And they certainly weren't. Balanced with, can we afford it? Or definitely, we're not balanced with what does this do to individual freedom, um, which is very, very dangerous. Because to me, we as as Americans in an understanding human nature and history and how governments work with people, even if the vaccine was one hundred percent safe and one hundred percent effective, we should still really struggle with the government making people take that, right? Because, okay, here's a great solution, but is it worth uh, throwing away individual freedom? You better come up with a really good case, right? And so the founding fathers, they understood this would be constant debate, right? But those things needed to be balanced. And I thought this was really interesting. So, Thomas Jefferson would have been with the Federalist, um, so kind of basically in the wing number one, right? That that he was probably open to a little bit more government um, than the Anti Federalist. Um, and, and so there was going to be pushback. Uh, Samuel Adams was kind of on the other side. Um, and they had lots of heated debates. And Thomas Jefferson has lots of writings. And in some of his writings, um, he said this, and this I thought was. Really interesting because it's basically the struggle that we have now. And they had it back then. He, he wrote this. He says, I've spoken to the Federalists as if they were a homogeneous body. But this is not the truth. Under that name lurks the heretical sect of monarchists. Afraid to wear their own name, they creep under the mantle of Federalism uh, and the Federalists like sheep permit the fox to take shelter among them when pursued by dogs. Right. I'm, I'm going to continue reading, but isn't that interesting? You know, that he said people can come in under the name, but they actually have a very different ideology. I, I would propose that we are seeing this for sure in the Democrat Party. A, a Democrat from 20 years ago would not recognize a Democrat from today. They, they just, just wouldn't. It is a totally different platform. And, and I believe that the wolf has come in and unfortunately has, has completely turned that party and un, is also do, does major damage in the Republican Party as well, because Republicans now want just about as big of government as, as Democrats do um, many times. So, but this is something that they were fighting back in the late 1700s, right? And then he says this. This is, These men have no right to office. If a monarchist be in office anywhere and it be known to the president, the oath he has taken to support the Constitution imperiously requires the instantaneous dis, uh, dismission of such officer. And I hold the president criminal if he permitted such to remain. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty, pretty strong. And then he says, "To appoint a monarchist to con- conduct the affairs of a republic is like appointing an atheist to the priesthood." I I just I, I loved that line because if you if you don't believe in the basic foundational principles that it, you have to balance these two things, then you have no right in the government. And, and unfortunately, there's been a lot of people who have been in, We, you know, you talk about the deep state and everybody thinks, you know, oh, conspiracy theory, whatever. The deep state is just the administrative state. It's that group of people who are there no matter who the president is, right? Like, you know, and it, it's not like they're meeting in a secret bunker somewhere. You can go on whitehouse.gov and you will be able to find the names of many of the administrative state, right? They're, they've been there for 20, 30 years. Well... If they are people that don't that don't understand those balancing principles, they can do some major damage. And and I, I, I personally think it's time for a president to come in and follow Thomas Jefferson's uh, <laughs> um, advice. <laughs> but another thing that is uh, was, you know, they they recognize the importance of keeping the government small, which means. You you don't spend money you don't have right that that all of that is important because that's that's how you get a runaway government is whenever you just start spending money and creating money um, they they recognize that Thomas Jefferson again he says if we can prevent the government from wasting the labor of the people under the pretense of taking care of them they must become happy right so he knew the dangers of people just being happy with being taken care of and it's like we can't let that happen now remember he's on the party that is wants to come up with these ideas of how to how the government can help people but he does it's like but no we can't just coddle them they have to they have to be the ones that pursue life liberty and happiness right uh he, he also said this he says we shall all consider ourselves unauthorized to saddle posterity with our debts and morally bound to pay them ourselves and consequently within what may be deemed the period of a generation or the life expectancy of the majority. So he's saying basically Congress, you can't pass anything that you can't pay for in your lifetime. You, you You cannot leave this debt you know, from the government to the children, you know, and, uh, and how it, that was obviously something very important. And um, if, if you don't want to sleep tonight, go look at what the national debt is. Um, but don't worry, your children won't have to pay it back. Or their children's children. Or maybe the children, children's children, we will still be paying. Like it's, it's, It's overwhelming. I I really I don't know the answer um, to it, but I mean, we're at over 30 trillion uh, dollars, Um, but we are paying some pensions of Ukrainian citizens. So that's good. Um, uh, Another this I thought was really interesting. Samuel Adams um, mentions because he, again, recognizes how you can if the government starts thinking it can fix everything. It, that just leads to problems. And he said this, he says, I, and I, the fact that he used this word, the utopian schemes of leveling, which leveling was the redistribution of wealth, the utopian schemes of levity, le, leveling and a community of goods, which is the central ownership of the means of production and distribution, are as visionary and impractical as those which vest all property in the crown. These ideas are arbitrary, despotic, and in our government, unconstitutional. Now, I find that really interesting. Again, we're talking about Marxism hadn't even come about at that point. Marx was in the 1800s. But the, the idea of the monarch basically taking everything and owning everything and controlling everything, they knew that they did not want to go down that path. And... And as I was just reading some of that and looking at it, you realize this battle has been going on for a long time because ultimately it's a spiritual battle that then plays itself out in the government world. And and I, I hope that you can take some encouragement from that, that our founders knew this was going to be a challenge. So we still have the framework in place to defeat these ideas. And we've had to defeat these ideas at different times. The 60s, 50s and then 60s, that uh, um, was a major attack. And, and we've lost ground since, since Woodrow Wilson. We have been losing. He, he loved the administrative state. Right? We have been losing ground, but it's not over. The battle is, is far from over. We can still make a difference, and, uh, and I believe that, that we will. And so I just want to encourage us. Uh, to we have to stay the good fight. We do have to acknowledge the the evil and the frustration that is out there, um, but know that this is not a new fight. It's been going on for a long time, um, and and ultimately we are on the winning side. Um, even sadly, even if our country um, doesn't pull up before it's too late, um, we know that ultimately God is victorious in His kingdom and. that's the side we ultimately are on and we're going to focus on. So I hope that you have a a good day and we will see you again on the first uh, Tuesday in February, March. Oh my gosh. It's already, already March. So (laughs) see you next time.